When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I was, um, I was reading an interview a few weeks back, maybe a little while back with Iris Apfel the fashion designer and she said that in order to find your style and find your voice you need to know who you are first was that something that kind of rang true for you on this record and the making of it i think that i was actively searching for that actually um what she just said i was trying to rediscover what my voice was on this record having the last few a lot of the songs were born more out of uh shaping them around like what the band was doing. These came from a much more personal place. And like, I was trying to rediscover like, what is the voice that, you know, what was I inspired by? What was teenage Jessica inspired by? And have I lost some of those influences? Have I not allowed them to enter back in? And can I strengthen my songwriting skills on this record in a way that just like the hooks are sharper, the lyrics they might be more simplistic, but they hit harder and they're more meaningful to me. So yeah, I was definitely, I definitely had that in mind. Why had you felt like you kind of maybe lost sight of some of the things you've been inspired by in the past? I think it's easy when you've been in a band for a while to have like patterns that you go to, certain sounds that you gravitate towards. There's a lot more eyes on you, the bigger you get and you're like, does, is, does this work? You know, we'll like, our fan base appreciate this. And that's such a backwards perspective I have. And I, I rarely go there, but it does exist in the back of my mind. And of course, you know, the most free we are is when we're not thinking at all about those kinds of things and just creating from a, a much more pure place. But I think that I got a little comfy in not finishing songs and, and being more in a band environment where it's like, okay, well maybe I'll just bring these snippets and let almost a wall of sound take precedence over. And this is, this is totally had nothing to do with um, the talent of the the boys that are in the band. This was on me of just like, I would, I don't know. I found myself for a little while, just like not bringing my whole self to when I was playing these songs with the band. And I just like, I just kind of had to go away for a while and like gain my confidence back as a songwriter. And instead of saying like, what, I'm going to bring this tiny snippet. I was like, I'm going to bring a whole song. And then we have so much more freedom to figure out what do we want this song to sound like? Like it started off electronic. Okay. Let's, this is actually a guitar jam or vice versa, whatever. And it gave us a lot more freedom, I think. So that was awesome. So you'll, you'll come to the band with a full song or the pretty much the kind of structure of one. And then you'll take it into the live room with them and kind of just let it breathe and take on a slightly different form in that space. Totally. And I, and it was really awesome. Like, I think a lot of the cool things happened too, when they were able to step away with the songs, you know, Elliot, who plays synth in our band, I would just be like, Hey, 
go like just throw paint on the wall with like, you know, some different soundscapes or, you know, like a song like Shattering the Hourglass. He came up with this really cool loop for it. That is the intro to the record. And just, yeah, these really sweet ear candy parts that I think that may not have like come out of a just like a jamming or in the moment kind of yeah band rehearsal but just like we were able to sit with the songs in a different way because they were a little more fully fleshed out which was really freeing is that what happened with eyes are red you know because it's seven minutes did you take it in as a slightly more refined version and then it kind of just stretched that in the space or was the structure of the kind of longer length always there that was kind of a sweet surprise so I came with everything but that kind of outro part. But once the band started playing it and that like bass and drum groove, like it just like I just remember being in the room. We were having so much fun with that song. And Peter and Garrett started playing that. I call it our like LCD sound system, just like sweet, crowdy, lengthy outro, which we love doing that kind of stuff. But we'd never done it on a record before, except for maybe a song like Wide Awake. This one felt new and, and fresh. And so like they started playing it. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't want this to end. And it feels so like circular and just like, yeah. And and it was just one of those really cool, beautiful moments of like, yeah, this is going to be a seven minute song. And it doesn't even feel long to me. How did it impact what you felt about what came before? By putting it in the context of having that kind of, you know, my bloody Valentine-esque, you know, guitar ending. So for that particular song? Yeah. In terms of like what that, that, that song is trying to do by putting that ending onto it, how did, or how did that impact the way you felt about the kind of narrative and the voice and the perspective of it? Yeah, actually it felt like it's made the song stand up even stronger. Like, because when lyrically that is actually like one of the most vulnerable songs as it opens up, you know, it talks about what is it? Into your arms. I was kind of trying to do this Nick Cave. I love that song into your arms. Just like being a little bit, a little like too vulnerable for my comfort and trying to just like say what needed to be said, but then orchestrate these really sweet parts around it so that it doesn't just feel like a, you're reading my journal or something. <laughs> and yeah, I feel like that's one of my favorite things I think about what we do is we can go from like kind of a hypnotic more like that than the first part's more keyboard driven to just like easily go into a my bloody valentine jam because that is that is part of my high school influence and i hadn't done that in a while so it was really fun it's interesting you know you're speaking about it being one of the most vulnerable tracks in the record because there is a power to it as well like don't be afraid don't be ashamed you know, it's in, it's in the title as well. It's kind of driving home quite a positive message with that kind of repetition. Totally. I, and I, and that was really intentional too. That was kind of Sufjan Stevens inspired. I, his show, I think we saw him play at the Gorge, which is like a really sweet amphitheater in, in Washington, in Eastern Washington. And it was one of the last, I think festivals that I saw before everything shut down, but um, it's something off of age of ads and it's so good, but he just like, it's hypnotic. He keeps saying the same line over and over again and something about trust or maybe even not being afraid, but I just rephrased it into my own lyric. And I just, yeah, I was like, I really want to do that. And then I finally found the opportunity to say something that's like very, um, it's like one of the only times in the record that I'm like giving a directive to the listener and myself. Do you feel different each time you repeat it? Yeah. I think it takes on different meaning, you know, especially, especially when we're playing it live, because I'm actually seeing people's faces and seeing real-time reactions. But mostly it's just a mantra for myself because I think I don't think we ever really tire of hearing that for ourselves and for others. It's just like living life in a way that is unabashedly free, you know, of those kinds of critical voices or whatever it is that holds us back. Do you have any mantras that you kind of hold in your mind on a daily basis that you kind of live your life by or come back to on regularly? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, I feel like I'm constantly telling myself to be a person of my word, like let your yes be yes, your no be no. But in terms of like mantras, that still is a consistent one for myself of being fearless while creating and blocking that critical voice out. Um, what's another one? I'm sure I do. That's a great. No one's ever asked me that question. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> um, I mean, gosh, I feel like I got him out on this record. Shattering the Hourglass has You Don't Have to Be Strong Enough, which is, yeah, like basically I learned in the last, you know, few years to stop kind of holding that like steel veil over my face of like, if I'm hurting, like I'm, I'm going to let people in now and let people know. And I, and I want that for, you know, my band members for Peter, my partner, he plays drums in the band, just like when we're not doing very well, really allowing ourselves to be that support system for each other. Yeah. That's kind of what the title of the record is about as well. Impossible mm-hmm. way, the idea that you can't carry everything on your shoulders like Atlas. Totally. Totally. Do you put less pressure on yourself now after that revelation that you don't need to have the kind of guards up all the time? I think so. I think this whole year of like bands and having to pivot, like especially those that chose to release music, I think there was like kind of a new level of, at least for us, letting people in um, on a more personal level and still, you know, not giving everything away. But like you know, we did a lot of live streams on Instagram and tried to really connect with people because there was just a lot of fear happening, especially in the beginning of 2020 and uncertainty. And yeah, I think just like us trying to make ourselves more available on a creative level and inviting people into creating themselves. That has had an influence on me and and what I'm writing about now. And yeah, I think the more you practice that kind of vulnerability, the easier it gets. And almost just feel like I can't really even stomach anymore, like suppressing things or hiding them. It's just, it's come a lot more natural to be honest with people. Did that ever create attention in the earlier music though? The idea of like suppression? Like in other Deep Sea Diver songs? Yeah, like on the first two records. Oh yeah. So I think like, I would say that I've been a person that like, I think always I have gravitated more towards wanting to be open with people. But in those first two records, They were more like the first one was more narrative and talking about the scene, the music scene that I was in at the time living in L.A. and Long Beach, California, and just kind of like, I don't know, just a little more wide eyed and younger and just talking about my experiences with whatever in the music community. The second one, Secrets, was like a call to action, kind of like technology, social media, all these things are like burning our brains up and we're zombies and this is total bullshit. And like, I want to be wide awake. I want to be in the, the moment. I don't want to be a creature of comfort. There's all these things that I was just like, I don't want to be this. And that was secrets. And then impossible weight was this is what's happening in my body and my brain and my soul right now. So very different records. Just following on from what you were saying about secrets there, does that make what kind of happened last year a little bit frustrating that we've now turned to social media as like a primary means or a default means of connection with other people in the absence of a physical, like real meeting people in connection right there's like no option and so i think i like in my brain i felt a lot more grace of like picking up my phone to connect because like what else was there you know but i think peter and i were both really really compelled to do it in a way that wasn't just like here's content 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 it was like no how can we actually connect with people I don't want to do a bunch of pre-tape stuff. We're going to go live on Instagram and talk to people and answer people's questions in real time and start creative projects like Stay Home Stems where we record a beat or a guitar part and give it to people to then have a week to create a song with and they send it right back. Like, we, yeah, that was our way of... Because you can't completely write off social media. Like we, like, we literally just can't... I mean, if I really chose to, I could get it out of my life, but like it probably would hurt us as a band to not promote anything, you know, especially right now. But, uh, yeah, I think that people are pretty fatigued though now on social media. I mean, I, I have to be really, really scrutinizing like how much time I'm spending, you know, even just for doing deep sea diver stuff, let alone personal. What's your kind of optimum amount in a day? Where do you kind of cap it for yourself? I really, I'm trying to put like systems in where it's just like, okay, for things that I want to post, I try to not do it until I've done something creative in the day, whether it's spending time writing or reading or journaling. Cause if I start my day off doing that, it just kind of is a bad pattern. So like we do so much on our own still as a band, we're still shipping our records. 
you know, it's like we're, we have, we're so lucky to be working with ATO and they, they've been doing stuff on the label side too. And, but like, we're still very hands-on as a band, um, with like band camp and record shipping and all that stuff. And so like, I have to be really good about, you know, Mondays are shipping days. I can't do it every day. I just discipline and timelines and, uh, deadlines are my best friend. Yeah. So do I want to spend six hours on social media day? No. Like I'd rather spend like 20 minutes max maybe check some stuff at night yeah i've kind of been doing that with the news 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes at night yeah totally it's the same thing horrible i don't like the news at the minute (laughs) i know doom scrolling is a real thing especially now with all the the news going on but like hopefully it'll get lighter but i i i know that like i hate talking about what i don't want to do i love talking about what i do want to do and what I do want to do is be a more creative person. And that takes getting away from your phone and just picking up your pen, picking up the guitar, reading, writing. My brain comes so alive when I'm far away from thinking about social media. Do you say you journal as well? hmm Done that all your life? Yeah, I've always, I'm not like an avid journaler, um, but I pick it up probably three or four times a week and I used to do this thing where I would journal on the left, lyrics on the right, but now I've separated them out and I've been mostly, I kind of have switched it over to mostly I'm just like lyric writing instead of trying to write about what I just journaled about. I'm just starting to write and seeing what comes out. And it's, it's kind of different. I actually just picked up a Jeff Tweedy's book. Uh, what's the, what's the name of it? How to write one song. Did that come out last year? It came out this Yeah. Yeah. 2020. Yeah, yeah. I forget how early it is in this year. And it's so good. There's so many exercises in it that I have never done. I've always tried to do like once a week, do an exercise. I used to do this thing where I would like, you know, write down a Mitski song and try to line by line, insert my own adjectives or my own nouns or verbs or whatever, and just see what comes out and maybe take one line from that and then write a song about it. Things like that, or just like stream of conscious writing. You know, everyone has their own exercises, but there's some, some in there that like, have completely opened up a different part of my brain. And now I, I really see like when you listen to records like Yankee Fox, Trot Hotel and like Summer Teeth, you're like, how, how did he put those words together? You wouldn't think of that without maybe just randomly grabbing a word from a book and then matching it with a noun or something, you know, like, what does he say? Assassinating down the avenue or something like that. Just like these phrases, these things that like stimulate your brain and make them like come up with your own story in your mind. I love those kinds of lines. And I, I'm excited to go down this new path of with, I don't know, just like always trying to sharpen my songwriting skills and do, th- do new things. I guess it's a little bit about finding ways to keep it exciting for yourself as well. It makes sure there's still spontaneity totally. in the process, even when you've been doing totally. it for a while. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like a new texture, a new tool, all those things. And anything that has the word new before it, for me, is really exciting. I want to come back to the journals just quickly, because in regards to what we were speaking about earlier, with just before this record, you kind of learned to let the guard down and let other people help carry the weight. If you ever read old journal entries, you know, from a few years back, were you able to be completely open in that space? Or was that tension and that guard still up in the journal? I think that was my safe place to say exactly what I wanted. So I see openness, but just I could tell I wasn't ready to like let the general public in on that or certain friends or whatever. I think I've always battled that tension of like giving too much away in a song. And you know, maybe the the Nick Cave or the like Tom Waits lover in me that just like wants to be more poetic, but sometimes that blocks me from saying what I mean. So I think I was writing my journals to say all those things, but I was like, uh, it feels a little too naive or trite to write down. You don't have to be strong enough. But I was telling myself those things and I was like, or, you know, dealing with depression, anxiety, whatever it was. But yeah, that's a great question. But it took me a while to be ready to write them in songs. And there's something different as well. Like you're saying, it was word writing it down. There's something different as well, you know, when you sing it, when you speak something as opposed to seeing it written down on paper. Totally. Yeah. And it's interesting. You asked about does don't be afraid, don't be ashamed mean something different each time. I think inflections in your voice and the way you sing something, whether it's soft or it's, you know, screamed like (laughs) that can totally change the way the listener hears it too. And 
it's pretty fascinating. Is the catharsis you get from screaming something and the catharsis you get from like saying something in a really kind of soft whispery tone, are they different? Yeah. Screaming something like ignites your body and like makes you feel more alive. I think that when I'm singing something softer, it feels more contemplative and allows me to kind of go to like a dream place in my brain. When I'm singing, when I'm screaming something, if anything I've ever screamed on stage or like there's like a song on secrets from it takes a moment where I just do it's like, uh, (laughs) it sounds really bad. I didn't warm up. Um, but like during the bridge, like I'm just like pounding on the guitar and just screaming this, Oh, or whatever. And it's not even a word. just Oh, (laughs) you know, it's just a sound, I guess. But it, that was like the pinnacle moment of that record of just like, I want to be fully alive right now. And I want everyone else to feel that same way. And I want hairs to stand up on your neck, all those kinds of things. And so, yeah, there's, there will be reasons why I would choose to scream or to sing something softly and they feel totally different. I always think it's crazy that you can, you know, in so many songs, people just sing the melody. They won't sing words like you sing there. You'll just sing O's and it still manages to, that's the bit that gets the whole crowd going, you know, it's the bit that everyone manages to tap into and resonate with. And it's just like a completely different way of getting the feeling across in the song. Oh, it's crazy. I like, I know it's not an O, but I remember seeing Paul, I took my parents to go see Paul McCartney when he played like the stadium in Seattle maybe four or five years ago. And when everyone was singing the na-na-nas and Hey Jude, it was like this incredibly spiritual experience of just like hearing 50,000 people sing that. And it's the melody that makes you nostalgic. It's the freaking yeah. Beatles that make you nostalgic, but it's just a nah, <laughs> na-na-na-na-na. Um, and, but it was so cool. It was beautiful. Is it ever different when you hear someone else singing your words? Like in terms of the catharsis of it, like you're sitting there, you know, you'll be in a crowd and it's really powerful hearing 50,000 people singing Paul McCartney's words. Like on the album, you've got, you know, Sharon featuring. Does it almost take on a different meaning in some ways when you give your words to someone else to sing? You know, I feel like whenever I've heard somebody sing the words, I'm not even hearing them sing the words back to me. I'm just seeing an emotional experience on that person's face. So I'm not like thinking about okay I'm glad this is translating it's like I'm just like looking and being like amazed that they're even singing it at all and fascinated by whatever facial expression they have or if they're closing their eyes like it's almost like I'm entering that experience with them but I'm not hearing my words back does that make sense yeah is that almost the closest you get to hearing your song like someone else's song like with you know objectivity in a word way like experiencing it like from the point of view of the listener. Maybe so. I think it's more like connecting on a, what's the word? It's a enter word in the blank level, but I can't think of it right now. Yeah, I just think there's something, you know, singing with other people like cre- creates different energy in your body. I don't know. It's, it's, it's like not like I'm even hearing my song. It's just I'm there fully present performing and also fully like entering into like, I always talk about Nick Cave when I do interviews because I love him and I'm very influenced by him. But he talks extensively about like the spiritual experience of like, if you see, you know, you see him, he's like holding people's hands. I wish sometimes they didn't play guitar because I want to do what he does where he likes actually physically grabbing people's hands that are reaching up. You know, it's almost this church like experience. It's pretty crazy, but like, yeah, he, it's such a soulful moment like when he is he is there with people he's not trying to reach everyone in the stadium he is there with those front row people even though he's performing for everyone he's making an intentional connection with the people that decided to come be in the front row or whatever i've always tried to do that but i don't necessarily hear my songs back i'm just trying to be present with people sorry i was just contemplating that (laughs) that was crazy like yeah he was talking about how some people you know 1975 they're playing to the stadium and maybe they'll connect with the front row but like It's just like, it is meant to connect with the whole stadium, you know, but like Nick Cave and you don't feel left out if you're in the back row of a Nick Cave concert, you're just like, I want to be in the front. You don't feel left out though, because he's putting on the best fucking show, but there's something going on in that front where you, it's just like a mystical thing. It's crazy. It's like a wave, like it's incredibly intense at the front and it kind of just passes back through the crowd and even at the back, you're still getting a bit of the feeling of it, but just in a different way. Totally. That song impossible wait as well that was the last one completed right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
It almost didn't make it on, which is crazy. I mean, the record w- was a different name. I don't even remember what it, we called it. Um, but yeah, I'm so thankful that we went back in and did that one. Did it feel complete without it? Does a record ever? I don't know. <laughs> like, we're Yeah. Like you're always asking, oh, is there one more song? Especially when you're a band trying to fight for like, you know, just hoping that you can get the kind of attention or respect or whatever, just like, or played on radio. Like, you know, it's just, there's these gatekeeping things that you're hoping you can at least get past that. And so people can hear the record and you can stay afloat, you know, as a band. And so I think you're always thinking like, is there a radio single, whatever. And the cool thing about like our managers, when we, when they, they, we asked them that question, they were like, the record's amazing. If you want to go do another song, totally. And I was like, I just felt free to do it. I wasn't like, I need to write a single. Because that's a bad place to be into. It's interesting that's the song you write, though, when you feel completely free. Because it's almost one of the most directly cathartic I know, songs right? in the record. I wonder <laughs> if there's a link there that once you're free, you kind of gain access to that, which you couldn't when you kind of have the pressure fully burning down on you when you're right in the midst of recording. I the think you're right. I like, yeah, I think something was released. And I think the fact that it was a co-write, too where there was an extremely short timeline and extremely quick turnaround of recording it. There was just no overthinking anything. Jen, to Sylvia, my co-writer, helped me access that, like, that line of just that had been in my head. And she, she was just so good, like the, um, but that was then and this is now. And then that opened up a whole new world. Because that's, that's one of those lines where I was like, that's too trite. Even after it was written, I was tried to change it. And Peter was like, no, it's good enough leave it alone. It's awesome. And I did. And, and I'm so, I'm so glad for these incredible outside voices that just, you know, help steer the ship too. It's, well, it's interesting that you're speaking there about, you know, these people can, that you have surrounding in the studio can make you realize, or they can give you that perspective rather. Is that a tougher thing to achieve and maintain throughout the process when you're producing the album as well? Cause I imagine when a producer sometimes serve that role too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I am grateful for my co-producer, Andy Park, who, you know, when we were looking for originally when Peter first told me that he thought it would be a good idea if I produced it, I was like freaked out. I was like, there's no way the record won't get done. I'll just be like pressing record into eternity, you know, and doing things over and whatever. That's the perfect. That's the that's me. The bad perfectionist part of me would come out. and. Andy did such a great job. I knew I could trust him with like being the right hand man of like helping, you know, see my blind spots of like, oh, you should tighten this lyric up or no, that was a good enough take. Let's let's move on. And he I was just allowed to dream as far as I needed to with the soundscapes and the textures that I wanted on this record. And he was able to get those sounds quickly, which is part of like what is helpful when you're making a record, too, was you're not sitting for 10 hours trying to get like a snare drum sound, you know? (laughs) And so like, I really felt, and because the band just really trusted me, which felt amazing to go and, you know, direct things and step further into like the production mindset that I love about myself. I cherish that part of myself. That's how I listen to music as I, I love trying to figure out how to get sounds on my favorite records or what makes a song feel like it's floating in the ether or really grounded and like hitting you in the gut? What are those sounds and how can I get them and can I put them on this record? And so I was, I feel like I was able to do those things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you quite often have at the start, I mean, the start of the record, I start quite a few songs, you'll have that slightly dreamy thing. And you reverse guitars quite a few times, don't you? Yeah. Um, on Impossible Way, that lead line, that me, um and uh i think the solo for hurricane i it sounds reversed because of some processing that i was doing with like different pedals or whatever it isn't reversed but it sounds like it's coming at you in a weird way yeah you can have those moments where it floats and then suddenly it feels like the full band kind of burst through and emerge because i mean through most of the record you have the sense of it being you know a group of people in a room together yeah i was really intentional about that when we were tracking at Studio X, everyone was pretty much in the same room except for for the drums, but there was glass. You could see, you know, we all had, you know, line of sight or whatever. 
I think that is one of the strengths of this band is we're able to do records, cut the basic tracks or most of the tracks live with each other. And we really, really rehearsed so that it would send, we want, I wanted to finally capture the true like live energy of this band. And, and I think, I think we got that. And some of the songs I love, I was just talking to somebody about like, do you do click or not click? It's like, well, clicks click. I don't see it as a bad or good thing. It's just a tool to have when you need it. But I love not using click and a few, I think, I think eyes are red. Once the drum machine goes away at the end, we took away the click and it has just this fluid feel to it. I could be wrong, but yeah, I I think it's important to not part and parcel out like everything. It's like drums first, then the bass, then this, like sometimes that works, but I, I, I much prefer playing with people in a room. I mean, when you take out the click, like you say, it gives it that slightly free floaty edge and it's not going to be perfect but there are the, there's going to be these moments that make it feel a little bit more genuine and authentic is it difficult yeah. as a perfectionist to kind of accept that some mistakes are actually going to make it better uh it depends on what you consider mistakes because sometimes like i've learned to not think of mistake as a bad word so mistakes are the things that lead you down a different path and that is neither bad or good. So like sometimes, you know, it's something as if there's like something jarring and it takes away from you as a listener hearing a song. If it's just like a terribly wrong note that like in a really delicate song. Yeah. Okay. I probably will take that out. But if it's like the drums, you know, if they, if the rhythm section's kind of speeding up or something's a little, like I think about like a, a lot of the clash songs that I love or Tony, is it Tony Allen? shoot uh the afrobeat drummer yeah 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 like he was always behind the beat and i love it so much and some of the fills are like it's like almost like how did he hit the one because they're so behind and that's the charm of it it's not in in a technical respect that's a mistake but it's not a mistake that's the vibe and so you have to learn is the mistake the vibe or is the mistake the thing that's going to take people out of a listening experience yeah, it's about trying to get more of your personality across. Totally. How do you make an instrument play to you, you know, your unique personality when so many people have used it before to generate their own sounds? I think with like guitar or any instrument, the more you play it, the more you step inside other people's brains. And like I'm a I'm an unabashed advocate for copying people and trying to enter into their brains using that as you're writing a song and usually by the time your song is done, it sounds nothing like that person you tried to emulate, but then you find that, Oh, okay, cool. Now I'm writing songs in this direction or I I found this new tone and I'm going to do one thing to it that like completely freaks it out. So it doesn't, it's almost unrecognizable to, you know, me copying like a Robert Fripp part on a Bowie record or something like that. And so I like to combine a bunch of different influences in one part that maybe don't make sense. Like, What's the last thing I did? Like a talking heads synth line interpreted through a guitar while also trying to play like, um, what's the uh, guitar player from Tom Waits band? I'm completely blanking right now. Uh, Mark Rabot. Um, Yeah, Mark. Yeah. So like forcing those things into the same box and then putting my own voice on it and seeing what comes out. I don't know. Just so much fun. And so I think that like the more you explore and things like that, the more naturally your own voice is going to come out and your own unique style. And so when you start thinking about your own unique style, that's, I think, more of a hindrance. So it's almost like counterintuitive to go try to like play the things that excite you the most, you know, especially when you're a kid or like the records that bring you alive the most. But I find that it's done the most like pushing out on the, on the edges for me as a player. And then when I listen back, I'm like, oh, that's pretty sweet. I'm seeing a pattern emerge of like a new, a new sound and a new voice for me. Do you have an instrument that you, you go to to naturally express yourself as the one you tend to find yourself gravitating toward more frequently to express your own kind of personality? Mm, yeah. You know, I, it's hard to say because like the one where I find, like if I feel like a song coming on, I will go to keys because it's less of a hindrance for me. I don't worry about tones. I just try to get the song out on the keys with blocked chords and I try not to be too ornate and just like create some patterns. With guitar, I see it more as the like the call and response instrument in my head. I hear rhythm parts and I hear lead parts 
but sometimes I can get in the way of my songwriting if I'm just like trying to noodle around too much. So I find myself being able to fully express myself without hindrance on keys easier, actually. Did you write Switchblade on the piano on keys? Yeah, yeah. Interesting, because that's a song about other people's stories. Was that a deliberate move to write it on keys to try and get your own personality in there too, despite it being about, you know, other people's vulnerability to a certain extent? Totally. Like that was, uh, I mean, that was, that song is fully like my John Bryan, Paul McCartney narrative kind of song of just like, can I be a better storyteller? And I, those stories are real to me. They're true. I experience them with those people and can I get them out? And so, yeah, I didn't want guitar to get in the way. I wanted that classic song to come out. So yeah, I just used those classic influences, Amy Mann, you know, those kinds of things. And just like, let's tell a story and, and I, how can I get out of the way? Do you draw parallels between what they're feeling and what you felt before to try and channel the vocal performance or what you kind of tapping into to, yeah. you know, yeah, collect, correctly display their vulnerability? Well, I think vulnerability at its most beautiful state is when both you feel that freedom because both people are being vulnerable or accepting of your vulnerability. And so like the course is important to me for me, you know, to say, I'm like hearing them say it's harder than you think. And it kind of, the lyric passes back and forth. Like, I know you get so down. Oh, I get so down. Like it's that true human connection of like, we are experiencing completely different things from day to day. And your trauma may be a lot heavier than mine that's not going to stop me from listening to you and understanding you and hopefully vice versa. I feel like that's something that the world kind of needs at the moment, that message. We kind of live at a time where there's a certain lack of compassion. There seems to be totally. not much ability to kind of resonate with other people despite coming from completely different walks of life. Yeah, there's just no conversation anymore. It's so polarizing and uh, snap judgmenty, and I, yeah. I needed, I hope, I hope people, you know, when they hear that song can be transformed and slowed down and wanting to enter. No, it's, and I, it's, I'm not trying to make, it's not a political thing to me. That's just a human, you know, nature thing to me of just like, you see someone hurting. How can you help? How can we be there for each other? Do you have different conversations in person with people like that, that you don't kind of have the same past with? You know, you kind of just know them in that one space. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say a lot of those conversations, you know, were born out of um, volunteering at this place called the Aurora Commons. And so there are people that were living on the streets and they come from all sorts of different backgrounds, most of which I could never say that I could truly relate to, you know, being grabbed off the street or from your family at age 12 and being sex trafficked, you know, living, you know, growing up in a totally different state or with political backgrounds I don't know there's the it was like with talking with those people it wasn't about that it was just like their needs were so present because they're trying to survive and so it was mostly based around just like how can you know we help each other survive to the next day how can what do you need that's going to allow you to thrive you know and less about are our backgrounds the same or do we disagree on these things do you think about that afterwards in the context of your own life too do you ask those questions to yourself like what do i need to thrive in order to yeah. thrive and all those things yeah i think when i think about the word thriving i'm always trying to combat cynicism trying to combat um like a narrow worldview or judging other people i hate talking about what i don't like and i love talking about what I love and what I want to strive for. And so those are weapons against those things. Good weapons. <laughs> <laughs> Not guns. <laughs> how do you, when you become aware that you have those tools, how do you use them? Mm, well, it's, I mean, so much of it's mental, you know, just like in your head stuff. But, but I think that this last year has really allowed me to, you know, with those who are closest to me, like, constant we're constantly challenging each other especially because I'm a lot of them my friends have moved to different states and so we're just talking on the phone a lot but like those conversations are resetting conversations for me I think you know you find the people in life that like 
truly know you and where you can come to with anything or like challenge them on the spot and be like, you're like, I don't recognize this thing in you or this is not what you're about. We've had so many of those conversations in the last year because it's easy, this insular living of, you know, not seeing anybody to like kind of become a skeleton of yourself. And for my personality, I'm an extrovert with introvert tendencies, but mostly an extrovert. And a lot of my personality feels like it was dying this last year because there was nothing to satiate. Like I'm so driven by learning from others in real time, in person or hearing people's stories in person and talking about new ideas. And yeah, that, that was not there this last year. And so I'm so hungry for it, but the phone, you know, talking with people on the phone, it's fine. I'd rather be in person with them, but that's how I've kind of combated it. Does that have any impact on your creativity when that kind of part of your life feels like it's missing? Yes. Although sometimes that's where the perfectionist or the bad states of being kind of come into play where I forget about what's important to me because I'm not having like soulful, substantial conversations. I just kind of feel like I'm in a loop. And so I write like I'm in a loop and I don't like that. Is there anything you can do to move out of it? Can you consciously try and lift yourself out of it? Or is it just you need to have that connection back before you can be able to move out of that? I think that books do that for me. I mean, I'm reading East of Eden again. And it's one of my favorite books of all time. The vivid landscapes, the it fascinates me how that biblical narrative that's used over and over again. Uh, but Steinbeck captured so well of the brothers and the the, the father or whatever, um, Cain and Abel, and like the fantastical realm of things helps me, but it won't last forever. You know, I still need the human contact and connection. Would you ever try and employ like a kind of classic narrative like that in your songwriting in the same way he does where he takes like a biblical story and implants yeah, it? Yeah, I'd love to. I think about like, you know, with other storytelling, the, the Joan of Arc story has been told a million times or whatever. It is. I think it'd be amazing. Like, why not? I think that was something that um, C.S. Lewis is really good at in storytelling. Yeah, I, I find it to be a good challenge. Maybe I'll take you up on that. <laughs> I guess you have quite a bit of biblical imagery on the first record too, though. You can have yeah, doing it more it sneaks way. in there for sure, definitely. Whether you're religious or not, like there's something really cool about all of my favorite artists have biblical imagery in, in their songwriting. You know, we'll t- turn the stories on their head or, you know, add their own mysticism to it or whatever. And I think it's fascinating. You know, the same way we were saying there about how reading books can kind of help to regenerate the process when there's that thing lacking. Could you see Paris, Texas bleeding into your songwriting in any way? Or the music you were making when you were working on this record? Yeah, definitely. I like love that Wim Wenders film and the relationship between the father and the son. And he was saying things very plainly to his son or having this like he became childlike once he went on the road trip with the son to find the mom. And I felt like I was able to access a more childlike place. You know, after seeing that film and allowing the visuals to to soak in. But I mean, by accessing that childlike place, what sort of a perspective did it give you upon what you were making? I think, you know, I think of a song like People Come and People Go. That's a very reflective song of the past and into the future. Because I'm thinking about all these stories that we gather and that we hold in our conscience and like subconscious and like how they've shaped us and then also how people even relationships that we cherish so much or resent they go away and they they float in and out of our lives and to some degree we have control of that on a life and death degree we don't we don't know when people are going to pass away and so I think that was a lot of stuff I thought about as a kid and I wonder if that has a parallel with um I was adopted and just kind of trying to find my place in this world, even though I have phenomenal parents, um, but just like, you know, identity things. Where did I come from? Will I ever meet this person that had me? I eventually did be my birth mom. But um, and there's something in, you know, it's funny in that song in particular. It It's like one of the I wouldn't say pop. I mean, it is a poppy song, but like there's this ride in Disneyland called Splash Mountain. 
And it's like everything is really dark when you get to the end of the ride and the squirrels, they don't have food. And it's this weird little story like that's happening and they're huddled together. And then you go down the Splash Mountain and then they're all happy because I guess they were saved and they found food. (laughs) And like some of the that was like one of my favorite rides as a kid. And it always freaked me out, but in the best way. And like I applied that to like the textures of of the synths and um if you listen to the solo on that song, it's like Elliot had this idea for me to sing into this contact mic that he had put inside of a baseball glove and he ran it through a synthesizer and it sounds like this like really earnest cricket is singing to you. <laughs> this really longing earning sound or earnest earnest sound. And so I think some of my childhood stuff like came out and even production stuff, which is pretty cool. I don't know if that answers your question. I may have gotten way off the beaten path, but that's a fun story to tell. (laughs) Where did the idea for the baseball glove come from? Great question. That came from, um, I do this thing when I go into a bad place in the studio where I would bury my hands, bury my face in my hands. Like if I hit a point where I like literally, like this is, this is the point of no return of Jessica of like, this is absolute shit. I don't want anyone to hear this. I suck. This is the the lowest of the low Jessica comes out when you see my head buried in my hands and it could be mid take. And it's usually would come with singing like where I just stopped believing the song or stopped believing that what I did was good or whatever and went to a dark place. And so we had this joke where Elliot would then hand me a baseball glove instead. And then he turned it into a microphone. So he's like, well, at least you can keep singing if you, if your hand goes into the glove. (laughs) And so it then became this little funny thing that he like attached to his MS 20 synth and just like manipulated it. And it was the best I have. I I need to release video of it because I have it on video and it looks hilarious because my whole face is covered by this baseball glove and I'm just singing at the top of my lungs and he's making it sound crazy. It's so cool. How, I mean, when you go into one of those kind of dark places, how long does it typically last for? And how do you kind of get yourself out? Sometimes, I mean, wow. Usually like I can come back the next day and reset. But there was a time like before this record was made where it was months. I was just like, I don't want to make music right now. Like I don't believe in what I'm doing. And I'm not sure if I even want to play in this band anymore. Um, not against anyone that was in the band. It was just like, I don't know what I, like I didn't, I lost all confidence for quite a while. Do you think you can hear the weight of that, that kind of period of lost faith in the record itself? Could you have made the record with the same kind of emotional depth that it has without having that spell? No, 100% no. Um, and that's the beauty of going down the path. Like <laughs> of even, you know, allowing your, like, Allowing myself to even think those thoughts and say those things out loud was what I needed to do. Because if I didn't go down that path, I probably would have written things that were actually trite. Instead of thinking I was writing something that was trite, that ended up being soulful and beautiful, it would have probably just been trite and for the purpose of just releasing something. So I don't think it would have existed with the same degree of emotional attachment that it, it has had or what people have told me it's had, if I didn't go through those things. It's the horrible kind of truth a lot of the time of, of being an artist that you often have to go through a period of suffering before the beauty can kind of come out. Yeah, and I think I'm learning not to fight that anymore. When I was younger, I'd say late late teens, early 20s, I think a lot of artists would express the same sentiment of like, I don't feel like my art is authentic if I am not suffering or, you know, I didn't go through a huge like drug addiction phase or whatever it is. Like I didn't have a terrible childhood. Like there, there are certain things that you think, oh, you have to be this, like whatever life has to be really volatile for you to create something beautiful. But the fact is we all suffer to whatever degree we all carry trauma with us. And so that's not going away. It will keep coming. You know, you can't avoid it. Um, But I think that was the first time I recognized it and was just like, okay, I'm not going to fight it. I just need to sit in this place for a while. Maybe learn new things about myself that I didn't realize were buried down there, you know? Where would you say is the darkest place that you've managed to find beauty in with your music? 
um, I don't know if this is answering your question correctly, but like the darkness that I experienced when I was deeply depressed and didn't think I could was going to go on with like music and the way I had been doing it. I carry that with me still, even though I went through that and I carry that as a, like a, not a trophy or a badge, but like that continues to inform what I continue to create and how I continue to interact with people and with the music that I'm creating with others because of what I learned from it. And it has not completely evaporated. Um, but like, yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question correctly. I know it doesn't speak specifically to the darkness. It's interesting to think about that in context of what we were speaking about earlier with mantras in that it's almost like some lessons can only be learned through experience. They can't just be instilled in you or taught to you. Do the those kind of two types tend to inform your life and your creativity in different ways? The lessons that you have to learn through experience and the lessons that you can be taught or, you know, you'll hear a mantra and you'll be able to apply that to your life? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely the experience one, you know, is going to hit harder than anything someone just says to me as a mantra. But for sure, like, experiences everything. And I'm trying to push myself out on the edges too of, like, better... Like, Switchblade was me trying to step into the to more narrative songwriting and storytelling. I've never been great at that, or maybe I haven't tried it enough. Um, and so I have to bring my experience to the table too, or else I think it would have fallen flat. I'd be interested to keep exploring that storytelling. And if, and if I wonder what a song would sound like if I didn't try to insert any of my experience or the mantras that I was hearing in my head or something. It would still bleed it would in like. to some degree. You're you're right. You're probably right. Like, and I think you know, so many like uh, of uh, Paul Simon songs. He's the greatest storyteller. I wonder. I try to listen for like, where where are you in the song? Does it matter if you're not there? Because what's the record that I love? I mean, Graceland. I do love. I know it's a polarizing record. You know, some people talk about like John Lennon. I think he was quoted as saying he like they he never cared about lyrics and i'm just like i don't even know how to not care about lyrics i could try but i don't know this is a whole different conversation lyrically <laughs> i also think john lennon's lying though yeah <laughs> you think he was lying <laughs> it'd be interesting though, like what you're saying there you wonder like what you're saying about paul simon too if there's almost something maybe not more vulnerable but differently vulnerable when you're not present in the song like you're so vulnerable you can't even put yourself in it yeah, maybe so. I'd love to explore that more. I think that's uh I had a great time. I did a podcast with Timothy um Showalter from Strand of Oaks. We talked about the process of songwriting. And I'd like to do that with other more artists more often. I think that's why I love the Jeff Tweedy book so much. Cause he doesn't give away too much about his lyrics. He rarely talks about the meaning and the story behind, but sometimes he'll just give you these little snippets where you're like, Oh, that's where that line came from and often in this book that I've been reading, it's like, you just grabbed two random words from a book and then chopped them up and made it into this really cool poetic phrase. And so, yeah, it's that dance, always that dance between lack of ego and then also totally understanding yourself. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.